Welcome everyone, Mattia. I am very excited about today because I have a very special guest, Paul Hannan. Paul is a business and life coach. He has an extraordinary story and I'm really, really excited to have him in the show. So thank you for, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Matteo. It's great to be on with you and uh, I look forward to answering your questions and hopefully bringing some value to your audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be great. Um, so, Paul, you're in Sydney. We we're just talking about that, um, you know, in the beautiful, beautiful Sydney. Born and raised yep. over there. I'm curious to, for you to share a little bit about your journey growing up as a child. Sure. Uh, if you can, you know, introduce a little bit about your story, you know, growing up in, uh, sure. in, in the West Sydney. Yeah, that's right. I was, uh, I was born in uh, Newtown, actually at the front door of the house. My mother never made it to the hospital, never made it to the ambulance. Uh, and then my dad and mum were really, really uh, working class people. I say that dad used to collect garbage bins uh, and empty them in the, in the trucks, not like the modern autos. He used to physically run 12 kilometres a day, lifting up garbage bins and putting them into, uh, into the garbage units. Anyway, so that's how I grew up. And I used to watch my dad come home after starting early hours in the morning, and then he'd go and collect cardboard boxes and sell them to pay for the family holidays. So, yeah. you know, that, that was my introduction to entrepreneurial thinking, even though dad had a job, he would then do a second job after running 12 kilometers a day, and collect garbage, uh, cardboard boxes. And so that that showed me uh, what it was like. And then, unfortunately, growing up, in the area of Sydney, I won't mention the suburb, but it was out west of Liverpool. Uh, we didn't have curb and gutters. We didn't have even roads in some of the places we lived. We were in government housing. And so a lot of my friends um, started um, gangs and started stealing from other government housing projects. And I was part of those gangs. And um, fortunately, uh, my journey down that uh, path stopped. I often joke and say I've still got friends in that industry. If you, anyone's looking for a new car, or <laughs> that's a joke. But I did, sadly, one of my friends was shot dead by police because he went on to grand larceny. And so, you know, that's why I grew up. And one day, uh, uh, an immigrant from, from uh, the Middle East who had made himself successful in the finance and insurance industry, he, he met me one day. Um, and before I just say that, uh, a school principal uh, when he was giving me six canes on each hand, that's 12 uh, canes in one session because of the way I was behaving. Um, he said to me one day, his name was Mr. Parker, and he put his fist on my face, not hitting me, but he ground his knuckles on my chin. He said, Hannon, he said, you've got potential, but you're, you're mixing with the wrong people. You need to change the way you think. And that was one of the first seeds, other than my own parents' great example, but that was one of the outside family influences and then <clears throat> Reg Saguna was the uh, immigrant to Australia who showed me what he had done arriving here with nothing and had built up a, a wonderful um, a creative income business. And so that's where I learned and I joined the AMP Society and, and started selling uh, insurance for young people. And uh, I rose to be reasonably successful in that industry. But what, what that did for me more than anything, it, it taught me that if you didn't have wealth by birth, you didn't have to steal it, you could create it. And so that stayed with me in my DNA ever since uh, to create wealth. And so that was the beginnings of my story. And from there, I ended up marrying an immigrant uh, girl called Anne-Marie. We've been together all of our lives together. We were childhood sweethearts. We grew up together. 
Um, and uh, so Anne-Marie and I have been in business together on our own. I went on to become a school teacher, by the way, just quickly. I went and finished my education, became a school teacher, and it was teaching behavioral sciences in in uh, the private sector and helping young people realize that they didn't have to become what their environment dictated, which is a tenant of, of a philosophy in the world that your environment's going to make you who you are. And I, I agree with that to a certain extent, but only to the point where one will stop and say, you know what, I, I can create an environment here. Um, I can see something that maybe others can't see in me. And often people around you, and I had those around me, friends saying, who do you think you are? You're you're a government housing kid. Who are you to think you can go and do this and that and the other? So I had to make a decision one day to stop listening to people who were more, more or as messed up as I was. And, uh, and so I did that. And, and uh, thankfully, uh, we rose to have our own business and, and went very well. And, and uh, we went overseas and commenced uh, working our business in the United States. Uh, our children had grown by that time. So I'm giving you the high points. And then we were smacked with the GFC in 2008 and basically lost everything. Um, so Anne-Marie and I came back to Australia and we're starting to put our lives together. I loved motorcycles. I'll give you the high points of what's challenged me. And, um, and but Anne-Marie had always stuck with me and we we're always uh, uh, making, I guess, new ideas of creating a, a better future for ourselves and our family and our, our children. And so... Um, one day I was going to a board meeting. I built my, my clientele back up after coming back from the States uh, wounded. And um, I was going down Military Road, if those that know Sydney, where it goes onto the Harbour Bridge. And on the 29th of August, 2016, unbeknownst to me, at quarter past nine in the morning, there was um, 14 metres of fluid on the road that caused my motorcycle to spin out of control, go on its side and flicked me up in the air. And I went up in the air and came down on my head. And there was a government bus behind me that stopped all the traffic. And uh, the Channel 7 News helicopter, which I have footage of, said that I was a fatality that morning because they thought I died on the road. I don't know if I did or not. Obviously, I didn't because I'm here. Whether I did or didn't, I don't know. They can't tell me. But I did wake up in Royal North Shore Hospital with three brain bleeds and broken bones all down the right side of my body. So from 2016 to about 2019, um, I, I will say, uh, through the grace of God and also the love of my beautiful Italian wife and children, um, I was restored and was back. And as one of my clients said, we didn't think we'd ever see you back, but here you are. And in wow. some way, wow. yeah. So I just want to stop way, a second there because um, yeah. uh, there are so many things that you already touched, Paul, that, that I wanted yeah. to dive in. But um, And I think there are great things. But let's just, um, before we move on to the next thing, with that accident that you had, Talk to me about the period about, you know, having to fight through these four years or three years to, to recover from that. How, you know, how was it mentally to be able to, to move on from that? I mean, take us through, through that period of time. How, you know, what was happening in your head and how did you yeah. become eventually? Well, fortunate. Thank you, Matteo. I hope I didn't go too fast and too quick in that. No, that's fine. But, um, the, the brain bleeds had stopped, obviously, and uh, I was left with three areas of the brain that I was told by the neurologists and the psychiatrists that were attending to me that they would never, ever come back. So I was left with um, depression, which I'd never had it in my life. I was left with panic attacks. Um, I had migraines without the pain. So any, any light or noise that 
was even normal, like Anne-Marie moving a dish in the kitchen. I thought she was throwing dishes. That's how it sounded in my side. Yeah. So for, for the first 12 months, I was basically almost in the fetal position in a darkened bedroom in our home. And um, and if Anne-Marie was here today, she would tell you, she, well, she's here, but not in this room. <laughs> if she was around in this interview, she would, she would tell you that she didn't think I was going to come back. Um, so, uh, so the depression, so I had to start thinking of things that would help my mind um, re-engineer itself. I believed in these things. So somewhere, what I was going to say early, but I, it's pertinent now, and thank you for this question. Um, somewhere in my cells, there were thoughts recreating themselves that there's still a future. And that might sound a little bit, I don't know, hairy fairy to some people, but what I say to my clients today, if I can just use this as an example, I say, where are your thoughts right now? And I'm not asking what are your thoughts on? I'm saying, where are they physically? or biologically and people say well, what do you mean i said well what do you think your thoughts are and they stop and they say if they don't know the message behind changing your dna that well they say well i don't know i said well they're actually cellular every every thought is a cell and those thoughts don't go away we have trillions of thoughts if you look it up in in the genome and and, and the dna projects around the world today we have trillions of thoughts and we get billions of them a day and those thoughts are contained in cells and the currency of those cells is information as well as water and oxygen and nutrition and the ability to be oxidational. You get rid of the waste. We have information in every cell. And, and a lot of our information at a cellular level is nurtured information, not just natural information or na uh, information by nature. Like I have my father's genes and my mother's genes. They're in my body. But that's only half the story. The other part of my genetic disposition and choices and the way I look at a depressing moment is based on the information that I'm feeding myself. And so somewhere in that dark space, and I still have moments of panic today. Uh, now nearly, it'll be six years on the 29th of August, it'll be six years. I still have moments that that take me and Amber looks at me and said, and she'll say, because we have this communication uh, covenant she'll say don't allow the panic to take over and that triggers me to dig into that informational source that's in there from what I've been reading what I've been listening to music wise um, and all those things add up to help my cells have strength just like a weightlifter would build up which I had to do to get my body back from the injuries physically also just as our physical strength has to be built by resistance training our mind strength and our emotional strength, and some might say our spiritual strength from meditation, has to be built up to grow and become strong to withstand just the normal battles of life, let alone the ones that come through injury or, or abuse or whatever people are facing in the world today from the past or the current circumstances. You can't do it just by, I'm going to get better. You've, you've got to build those elements in there, and there's, there's ways to do those things. Um, so hopefully that wasn't too elongated answer, but no, yeah. no, it, 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 that's amazing. And I think, you know, it makes total sense. If you say that thoughts are cells, yep. basically, if you have negative thoughts, you are feeding your body with negative cells and it makes sure. total sense when I was listening to, you know, some years ago, I'm training from Tony Robbins to, talking about cleansing yep. and having a body's alkaline yeah. rather than acid. 
And when you yeah. have all this negativity, all this stress, all this anxiety, all of this stuff that happening, eventually it puts your body in an acid state. And the more yeah. acidity that creates, the more you're higher the chances to get cancer and to go down the path of diseases. And, yes. and that makes total sense. And then you, you mentioned about, about the fact that part of it is the genetic, but part of it is, is just that, the thought, right? And yes. about two years ago, I had a problem in my eye. I went to see a doctor and they discovered I had macular degenerosis in my, in my eye and made me right. very, very depressed as well. And listening to Joe Dispenza and you know, even people like yourself now, it's very evident that the power of your thoughts can really dictate a lot to the outcome that you can have also from, a, from an accident or from something like that. And so you, from your experience, your thoughts, your daily habits have been having a massive yeah. influence in your ability to, to come out and, yeah. and, and have an yeah. amazing recovery. Yeah, I, I took, I often say to people, pre the motorcycle accident, I took a lot for granted. Um, you know, I, and I, I would have to say some of that was probably pride. Um, and there's nothing more with having pride, but a pride that's not based on the understanding that it takes others to help one not only achieve life's goals, but to maintain them. And I'd always loved and appreciated Anne Marie. And I'm not saying that as uh, uh, to be gushy, but. I appreciated her more and she's an opposite kind of thinker to me. So before I thought, well, that's nice, but now I, I understood the importance of it. So going back to the disc profile, Anne-Marie is a, a very carefully steady geared person, whereas I'm the opposite to that. Um, and so the value of that has helped me help clients to want to search for that in in everyone in their world, whether it's internal people in their business or external people, be it clients or prospects. So the heart and the mind, and I say the soul behind everything you do is makes you present, which is something else I also now share with clients to become mindful. And a lot of people, mindful meditation, they, there's some philosophies that believe you should empty your mind. Um, I teach that you fill your mind with the things that you want to be visited with tomorrow. And so mindfulness. So every day through that first year, and it's now become a habit for Amra. We don't, we don't step out of our house any day without spending time in meditation and, and, and devotional time. So we, we get, we are connected not only to each other, but to also to ourselves. So when we go out into the real world and there's traffic and there's other things where I used to experience panic attacks driving and had to pull over. Now my mind is, is in place so that is an amazed for me that's a a, a miracle for me that, you know i can withstand those things and then walking into a room where there may be conflict between you know factions within an organization for me to be able to to stay steady and be able to to help those people come to a communication uh, outcome that's a positive one and a productive one commercially so it's not just everybody being nice to each other it's it's more than that it's the financial controller understanding the manufacturing director and they come together and out of that they create something new that didn't exist before that's all come from those experiences that you've kindly asked me to share so yes. i guess it's a way that i say people say oh, you're very optimistic and i say well I like to think it's pragmatic optimism. 
Yes, I love it. I love it. Um, I have a question for you. I am yeah. a big believer in mindfulness. And I think when, when you ground yourself in the present moment, particularly when you're struggling in business, you realize, hey, I have a roof, I have food, I'm healthy, I'm, it's all good. It, it really helps yeah. you too. But at the same time, really high achievers, really high level athletes, really high level entrepreneurs, they are always looking at this massive picture, this massive vision that they want to accomplish. And it's very easy to feel the void between where you are and where you want to be. Because mm-hmm. as entrepreneurs, we always have an ambition that is kind of big. I, know, I don't want to say bigger than other people, but it's big. Yeah. And, and it's a very um, fine line sometimes between being mindful, mindfulness and, and present and, and not being finished sad because, because you're not there or because you're not seeing the progress of being there. But at the same time, you need to, yeah. you have this massive ambition and you want to achieve. So how do you, how do you see that? Like, what's yeah. your opinion on That's that? Good. Yeah, that, that's a good question. That can either be a regret that you're not there yet or a worry or an anxiety that you're not there yet. In other words, it can hit you. What, if you, don't, what if you don't get there, you know? Yeah. Well, there, there's a saying that I'm sure you have heard, and I, I'm not going to be cliche in my answer, but I'll make this state, this quote, this saying, I don't know who said it, but life is a journey, not a destination. Mm. So it's, it's, and that helps me stay present because often what I'm aiming for is not where I end up, but because I was aiming there, the present moment that I'm in is such a good one that that opens a door to an area that I didn't even see. But had I not aimed for that target, I wouldn't be in this position. So therefore I become appreciative of the position I'm in. It's a good position now, whether it's from a personal perspective, a commercial one, or a, a project management with a client, whatever it is. So the excitement, always that looking forward to makes this present moment even more valuable because I wouldn't be in this present moment had I not aimed for that. And one of the, going back in my history, I was interviewed once, if I may just share another, I like to share real stories. Yeah, it helps people see that this is not a theory, um, but it's practice. practice. Anyway, I was on a a live television show um, and uh, I won't mention the interview, but it was part of a famous journalistic family. There was a few brothers are all doing the same thing. Anyway, I was on there and, and I was being interviewed about a course I was running for high school students who were leaving high school and, and telling them how they can aim for certain things in life. And, and I got ambushed and, uh, and it was done good, but it was still an ambush. And they said, oh, so Paul, we've got some Harvard statistics here that less than 5% of Harvard graduates ever achieve the goals they set out to achieve. And you're out there telling high school students that they can aim for this and aim for that, don't you? And you're charging for it. In other words, you're making money for maybe potentially getting people motivated to aim for things that you know they're not going to reach. Well, How does that sit with you? That was the question. That's, that is a <laughs> so, moment you need to keep you calm and keep yourself grounded. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a great, uh, a great one of my mentors in days gone by that I had the privilege to work closely with was a guy called Tom Hopkins, who was a great, he was a salesman, but in the real estate industry. And I got to work with him over a few years and get people to his seminars when he used to visit Australia. Anyway, he always said, if you get into into a tight spot, create a question that helps the other person answer it. So like that, I had a question. I said, I'll just call it Jack. I said, so Jack, 
before I answer that, can I ask you a question? I get permission. He's, and what is he going to say on live television? No, you can't ask me a question. He said, yeah, sure. What is it? I said, do you like sport? He said, yeah, I love sport. I said, what's your, one of your favorite sports and that you do? He said, archery. And I said, well, oh, couldn't be better. I said to him, side, I said, okay, archery, where do you aim? <laughs> His face lit up. He said, I aim for the target. I said, do you always hit it? He said, no. I said, so why do you keep aiming for it? Because he said it's better to aim for it. And he had yeah. it, you know, better to aim for something and go close <laughs> than just throw your arrows around the archery yeah. range yeah. and hurt someone. Yeah. He said, and then he said, what time's your seminar? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And it's, it's a polite way to, you know, tell someone, back it off like this is, you know, just in the show them, you know, in a very nice, because it can be very tricky, right? When someone makes you such yeah. a difficult, particularly if you are, uh, if you're on TV. I'm very curious to ask you, Paul, about um, a person that had a massive influence in your life. His name is Brian. He's an ex-Marine. And he has a story yeah. uh, that is incredible, um, saying that at some point he had to uh, have a meal sitting on a dead body and he yeah. lost his legs. Um, Guide me through yeah. that, uh, some of that yeah. and, and, and the influence that he had on you. This, this, um, wow, that's, you've read the book then, have you? <laughs> no. Have you read my book? No, I didn't. Oh, I would okay. Be, I would be a liar week. if I said that, but I did my no, research. No. <laughs> Well, that story's in my book. I'm just wondering, and it's great. I'm going to tell you that. Where did you get that story? Uh, secrets. I got secret bird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So John Bryan, his name was, um, and he was a U.S. Marine. Yep. And uh, in growing up in the west of Sydney, um, um, you get exposed to all kinds of things. Uh, and one of the things I got exposed to was a, a guy who'd been a Marine, but he had an experience, he said, with God. And he ended up being the man that married will perform the marriage ceremony of Anne Marie, who was an Italian immigrant, and and um, many members of family thought we shouldn't get married because you know we were young and she was Italian and I was Australian, blah blah blah, and we hadn't had much life experience. But anyway, he 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 backed us up, and he he was a, a reverend by then. He became a minister, so an ex marine, and he told me the story one time of how hard and, and bitter he was. In his marine, one time he actually ate his lunch sitting on a dead body of a of a of a person in a in a uh, infantry uh, situation in the in the field of battle. That's how hard he could do that. He could said, "I sat there and ate my lunch," um, and that was a, a massive. Uh, and there he was telling us with tears in his eyes. And he, when he counselled Anne Marie and I before we got married, he said, "You know, uh, everything that you think." Is going to be bliss won't be bliss little did he know the things we've been through you know losing businesses and and yeah. near-death experiences and all those things and he said you've always got to find that that extra effort to to love the person regardless of what they're not being what you expect them to be and that formed one of the biggest foundations uh and the word love can be a word that that can be only thought of as physical or sensual but the love that he was talking about was that love that you put the other person first before yourself. And he learned that, he said, after being a person that was so bitter and hardened by the, by the theatre of war. Um, and so that, that area was a big influence. And you mentioned losing legs. That was my Uncle Bill. Uncle oh, Bill um, was a Second World War veteran and he lost both of his legs in the war. And I was sitting with him as a young boy uh, on his veranda at opposite Canterbury Racecourse where he had a house. And as a young boy does, I said, Uncle Bill, tell me again, 
how you lost your legs because you know a young boy you don't have the always the the decorum not to ask those questions and Bidi never ever stopped talking when when I asked he always talked about it he never hit it he said well he said I, I did that for my mates I said what do you mean and he told me the story of how an 88 millimeter shell um, took off both of his legs and uh, when he was running in a in a formation uh, to save one of his comrades and I said why did you do that he said for love the love of my country he said I can't tell you if the politics of war are right or wrong Paul he said but I can tell you. this was later on obviously it wasn't those words when I was a youngster but as I grew up I, I found out it wasn't about politics for him it was about the love of his mates which formed the Australian DNA that uh, we we will sacrifice um, for our mates and I think that's a key element of communication that you put yourself second uh, you want to understand the other person before you want to make yourself understood. And if leadership's about anything that I've learned, it's about helping the people that are listening to you to uh, understand that you're interested in them. And that goes into selling, whether you're a salesman or whether you're a parent, because I, I teach selling is not just a job. It's a, it's a role in life that we all have. And my definition of that is that when I'm helping another person make a decision that's good for them, I'm selling. And that should be the heart of every person, whether you've got salesman written on your card or not, or salesperson, because um, we all do it. Yeah, uh, and, and it's, it's a constant negotiation that we are negotiating all the time, every day, all the day. You know, it's a constant negotiation from, you know, talking to our partner in, in our workplace. It's, it's so let's talk about that. Let's talk about selling. Like, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's very important to and to understand that there is a big mindset component and and it's part of that is leadership as well like you were saying about you know you know we're talking about that and for me leadership is, is about listening is rather than talking 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 is listening to other people how you know how, you know how do you teach people in your you know in your day-to-day current business about you know being better leaders and you know having yeah. a, a, and more importantly i know that you do a lot of work in terms of communication so how do you help them with that with their um to improve yeah. in the organization yeah look it's it's a good question and i don't want to sound too simplistic but in the i guess in the setting of a of this podcast um there's a great saying it says rudyard kipling i don't know if you've ever heard of rudyard kipling but he was no. a, a good literary yeah look him up he said six friends taught me all i knew they are what where how why and who <laughs> i get six anyway there should be six i'll say yeah. roger's giving me the six friends told me all i knew they are what where how when why and who that is six yes yeah. um and sometimes i forget one of the w's and so if i if if i walk into a room say say a, a, a ceo or an md or whatever has said to me hey paul i want you to talk to my people they need to be more professional if i walked into that room and said hey, I'm here to help you guys all become more professional. You can tell the resistance who would immediately come up in that room. Uh, rightfully so. Who am I to tell them to become more professional? They'll be prisoners of war, so to speak, not using a uh, war analogy for the book, but in the sense that they wouldn't want to be there. And uh, so I'll walk in and say, hey, after introductions, of course, I say, how many of us believe that professionalism is an ongoing journey? How many? So straight away, hands might go. I'm saying, why do you think that? Why do you think we've got to be continually more? So in my questions, I'm asking them to tell me the answer that I want to tell them. 
So that's leadership. And I often, you said listening is a good leadership L. The other one is the linkage, to link, mm. to link. And so my goal is to help people self-lead because if we can't self-lead, how are we going to lead anyone else? And that's in any area of life from personal to professional. If we can't self-lead, so leadership to me is not, an, again, a name on a card like salesperson. Everyone's selling, everyone's leading and we need to be leading ourselves. And the better we do that, then others will choose to say, hey, I want to follow how he's leading himself. And that can be true in the form of business or in the form of life. Um, uh, As I might have mentioned earlier, um, Tom Hopkins said to me, he said, Paul, stop getting advice off people who are more messed up than you are. Yes, it was a question I wanted to ask you a bit later on about that. Talk about that. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, obviously growing up in in the government housing projects, again, I'm not making disparaging remarks there. I mean, that's where I grew up. I'm not making it a bad thing. It is a fact where I was. So in, in anyone's listening, they don't think that I'm throwing mud on that. But in that area, very few people had inherited wealth or any wealth to speak of because they're obviously, you know, in that particular position for whatever circumstances. I mentioned ours with my dad and my mum. And so um, I, I, I decided that, um, in listening to people who had something to say that wasn't in my current environment. Look, I've got to name this. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tenant in the theory of evolution that says you become a product of your environment. Environment, And a lot of people grow up thinking that that's an, an absolute fact. Well, it's not. It's a theory. Last time I checked, it's called the theory of evolution, not the law of evolution. Um, so... Whilst I believe there are obviously examples of, of um, microevolution taking place, a macroevolutionary moment where you change from here to there, changing your DNA. And I've taken the DNA acrostic dominant uh, uh, deoxyribonucleic acid without waxing too clinical and changed it or borrowed it to dominant neurological agenda. So rather than my agenda to protect my victim mentality that many people have that grow up without anything materially wise, you change that by deciding that you're going to listen to people who have something different to say than what you're used to. So you choose to get out of the environment that you're in. If the inv- and I think it was uh, um, uh, one of the great um, uh, scientists who said, if you keep doing the same thing again and again, expect a different result. It was the definition of insanity. Einstein. Einstein. Yeah. Thank you. Einstein. I, I was, was going to say Eisenhower. Definition of insanity is doing the same mistake over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, That's true. Thank you. And so, you know, we don't have to, we can create our environment. I often sign my emails, um, creating the future. Um, And that might sound arrogant, but it's not. Um, Well, it could be, but it's not meant to be. Um, Creating the future means I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know right now in this present moment, I'm going to be in this moment and out of that, something could come. So I'll give you an example. One of the things I, I've learned to love doing, which I never used to love doing it, I love walking my dog, who is also, besides human companions, Bravo uh, is a golden retriever, and, and he's yep. been with me all through this journey. He's been a wonderful companion. He's seven years old now. It's an, Ita- an, an Italian name, I guess. Bravo? That's right, Bravo. 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 is uh, like, good. like good boy. <laughs> yeah. So that's his name. Everyone loves him. Anyway, 
So when I'm walking, I don't carry my phone now and look that as a good time to text messages and take, I'm enjoying the moment with him. And, you know, in doing that, when people walk past me who've got their heads down, I say, hi, how are you doing? And it's almost a shock and that some of them almost burst out laughing. So, oh, yeah, you know, you know, because enjoy the moment. And in that moment, I've met people who've later become clients, not because I was out to make them a client, but you're in that moment. And when you're in the moment, that can create the future. Yes, yes. Yeah. So that's the excitement of life, of enjoying the moment. And uh, so mindfulness is whatever it is. So same thing. If you're going to have a meeting with someone, turn the phone off, put it aside, be there, not just eye eye contact, but be there with your soul, be present. And uh, you don't know when. So in those mindful moments is something that never existed before. I often say, here's me, here's the other person. When you become mindful, you get that space there that never existed before. Mm. Otherwise, you can just be like ships passing in the night. Yes. And that's the, one of the root words of communication is communion. Um, and if you're Italian and you're back, is that your ancestry, Italian? Yes, yes. Italiano. Yeah, so, Italiano. Italiano, yeah. So, you know, one of the big tenets of the Italian um, community, and this is not mine, but I know it's Anne Marie's was the faith in, in the communion, in, in the act of that sacrament with where you're literally partaking of the sacrament and of the, those symbols become reality in the transubstantiation uh, doctrine of, 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 of that uh, sacrament of the communion. That's where communication comes from. But if I ask somebody today in, in a school, what's communication? They say, oh, when I text my mate, well, have you communicated? Yeah, I sent them. Well, what did they think? I don't know. <laughs> so many people send emails, letters, met voice messages, and you have no idea whether you've com- what the communication was because the the meaning of everything is not in my mind. When I say something, the meaning's in your mind. Yeah, yeah, and it's so and interesting, we- Paul, because as immigrants, you know, Australia is a is a country where there are so many different cultures. It's yeah. not just that I'm coming from a culture I'm, you know, born and raised in Italy, so exposed to different things, and so inevitably you come here with a different perspective. But also, like the language we're talking about, the language that you used before, like the, a, yeah. a word yeah. can have a totally different meaning in the conversation in a public speaking. And so, because everybody comes from a different culture, sometimes it's so difficult to use the right words. And I have so many examples of me making mistakes working in a gym when I came here, making really, really funny mistakes about that. Um, some, some of those would have been funny, I'm sure. Very funny and cheeky. Uh, but I was, you know, innocent. I didn't, I didn't have an idea. Um, but yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree with you. Like really being able to communicate and, and being present. And I think what you were saying was once you're present, 100% present, you can actually start spot opportunities. Your reticular activating system is like starting to seek this. But instead, that's what I was saying to Renate that they were always so busy here, checking, 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 checking. We're not paying attention, right? Yeah, Yeah, well, um, it's good that you raise that. One of the jobs I do, I I run a couple of boards for different clients. And and, uh, on one of those boards, uh, one of the ladies on that board said, Paul, I'd like to make a recommendation. I said, sure. She said, um, let's all agree to turn off all the sound tones for every thing that happens on our phone, other than the ringing tone. Yeah. So if we're in the meeting, we turn it on quiet. But she was saying, and everyone adopted, and I've done it ever since, and a lot of uh, people on that board uh, have continued to do it. 
so when when a voice message or a text message or a social media uh, alert comes, I don't get sound tones anymore. No. So I only go to those at a time of day when I want to check them, not to interrupt a mindful moment with anyone personally or professionally. So we control the great technology. We control it. Doesn't control us. Yes. Um, and technology. I, I was in one of my sessions. I say technology will never replace presence mm. with a C. Mm. Technology will never replace presence. And I know the metaverse and all of these things where virtual realities and all, you know, and I have this discussion with people, not just philosophically, but technologically as best as I can, because I'm not a high end is do not ever think that technology will replace being present. Um, And so that's critical. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's actually really scary about that. Um, I would love to stay here talking with you for, forever, but I, <laughs> I just want to quickly touch on the on the two businesses that you had. Uh, I don't know yep. for one of the two, both of them overseas, and you lost these businesses. Guide me through that period of time because a lot of these people listen to this podcast. They are struggling with their business. They, uh, they don't see the, the way out of the tunnel. And... I think it's going to be very valuable for you to share your own experience, what happened sure. and, you know, what, yeah. what did you decide to do at the end? Yeah, well, it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good question and a, and a fair question. We, we went to, uh, we were invited by the Australian Chamber of Commerce to duplicate what we did in Australia. We built up a business called the Australian Institute of Human Dynamics. And uh, we went into the U S in 2003 for two years, every three months, we sorry, every yeah, every three months we went for a month and started building up a client base in the US from 2003, four, and five. 2005, we we went on a B1 visa there for five on a five-year B1 visa. And um, we started building up towards opening up um, what we call the simulation center, which I do now in mobile places. But anyway, we we went to <clears throat> started in Las Vegas. We were living in Dallas. And we had Australian clients invest in that project because they believed in the opportunity that was in Las Vegas, just for those that may not not be aware. It's the conference capital of the world. Over 40 million people go to conferences in Las Vegas a year. It's it's insane. It's just the most visited city on the planet. Uh, These were statistics back then, and they're still fairly current, even though it's 2022. So if somebody wants to check that out. I I haven't checked it for a year or two, but Las Vegas was still the most visited city in the world. And, um, and so anyway, uh, we were going to build a simulation center in Las Vegas. We had uh, a very good naming rights sponsor, Las Vegas Convention Authorities. We're going to uh, promote our event all over the world in their offices. There's even a Las Vegas Convention Authority in Australia. And so we were going to pick up a small percentage of that market. Our show in Las Vegas, even though it was a show, was a training show. People were going to learn to, to some of the things we're talking about here and how to apply it in their business. So you come to a conference and part of your conference agenda is to go to the DNA show and it would be a tax and a HR credited program. And uh, so it was all go. So five, six, seven, getting ready to launch. And then 2008, do you remember what happened? Yes, global recession. The global financial crisis. So we we got smashed. We lost, we basically lost it all, everything we had there and everything we had here, because we were backing it ourselves as well as our friends. So some of my friends lost money, uh, some of my business clients, most of them understood, a couple didn't, uh, and unfortunately still don't to this day. Um, But we did everything we could. 
um, to try and resurrect. We stayed on there till 2010, and that's when we came home. And I got to say, we came home wounded, uh, wounded mentally, obviously wounded financially, um, and uh, wounded so many ways. And we were sitting having coffee. And, you know, so what I teach, and I was teaching it, and now I'm enduring it and experiencing it, probably the most harshest I've ever experienced in my life. And um, so we were living in a little rented room uh, on the northern beaches. We came back in. We were sitting having coffee um, on the beaches of DY. And I looked up and saw this sign, Girdless. And, uh, and I don't know if that name resonates with you, but it might with some of your audience. And I looked up and I said to him, oh, Girdless. I said, I wonder if that's Ryan Girdler who played NRL. He was a top NRL player. So I looked up to the coffee machine and sure enough, Ryan Girdler standing behind a coffee machine. So anyway, long story short, I went up and introduced myself and uh, Ryan wouldn't know me, of course, but I knew him and he said to me, yeah, right, I don't know you because he would have got approached everyone wanting his autograph. He played for Australia, he played State of Origin. Um, he, he was one of the only Australian, uh, sorry, only New South Wales players to score 32 points in the State of Origin himself through wow. tries and goal. He was, a, he was a very, played way above his weight and a lovely bloke. Anyway, Long story short, I gave him on a paper napkin a bit of the story of what we do. And he said, I'd like to talk with you. Long story short, we ended up becoming business partners. And I stayed as a business partner for Ryan Girdler and helped Ryan. And, and in some way, I believe, provoked him to become the Girdler's brand. He, he now has five restaurants, sells his coffee all over uh, other cafes, buy his coffee, and he's in some supermarkets. And, and uh, he went from a almost a takeaway coffee shop to, and that wasn't all because of me, of course. Um, Sebastian Martiz is his current business partner and he had another backer, um, David Riolo. But I was part of that element. So I guess what I'm saying, even in the midst of all of our crisis, we are able to offer what we had at that time and helped another man and his family grow in a business. And today, Ryan um, enjoys, you know, uh, a business he's worked very hard for him and, and, and his wife, Karcher, and, Sebastian and, and, and um, Natalie's his wife uh, and their staff, of course, over 100 staff. He went from a takeaway coffee shop almost doing you know, 30 kilos a week to doing thousands. Um, so in the midst of a crisis, and the Chinese, I think, have a saying that on the midst of, is it Chinese? I think on the midst of crisis, rise the, on the winds of crisis, ride an opportunity. Yeah. And so that kick-started Anne-Marie and I back in our coaching field. Um, I said to Ryan, let's work together for a couple of years, it ended up being five years. And then out of that, we've relaunched uh, what we do today, which is uh, changing your DNA and, and DNA coaching. So, yeah. How was the is beginning that... of your launching of the new, the new you know, DNA coaching here in Australia? When you, when you started again after working with um, this um, NRA player, how was the grinding? Was it hard at all? Or, you know, you, could you get clients like easily from referrals? How was it for you? Well, look, um, from a, if you're asking what's the logistics of it, I think if, if you bring value to a person, there's a law in, and I don't want to again wax clinical, please, Matteo, but there's a law in psychology called psychological reciprocity, which simply means you attract what you radiate. So when you're radiating a certain number of elements, those in the world, in the universe who are seeking that are attracted to that. So I didn't go and spend oodles of dollars then on marketing and advertising. I just did what I did. And people talked about what I did with other people, what I did. And 
one thing led to another. And before long, I had clients, you know, coming to a place where I did what I did, what I said I could do and help Ryan in the way we helped him. And I was ready to launch. So it was, a, it was an organic, I have to say, it was an organic process. And I'm not saying that's the only way to do it at all, but that's the way we did it. And I, that's what I know. So if somebody's listening here that's got a product or a service or whatever, you, you've got to really make sure that you're radiating not just confidence, but radiating the value that your product or offering service brings. If you're not radiating that, if there's doubt there, then like my journey coming through the depression, you've got to, you've got to work your way out of that. And, and, and there, there's enough in the human being and one thing you remember, the reticular activating system, I heard you mention that, that organ at the base of the brain, which is above the pituitary gland, is the organ responsible for helping our body to produce the pharmaceuticals, the internal pharmaceuticals. And I don't say that disrespectful to any pharmaceutical people, but it helps the body build into us at a cellular level. So we do radiate. And in case somebody's singing, what do you mean radiate? Look, we've all walked into a room or into a home and we could feel welcome or we didn't. That's what I'm talking about. We have a sense. And that's, again, being mindful. We need to sense what we're bringing and what people have. So if another person has a sense of skepticism about your product or a sense of objection, like that radio TV interview, you sense the objection. You don't have to fight it or defend it. You make your radiation more stronger. Mm. So they get rid of their radiated negativity and say you know what they then start asking questions and in the selling process that's a great sign when they say well how much does it cost how do we do this when can we start those sort of questions come because of the radiation that you bring to the moment yeah not just your head knowledge not just your product knowledge oh this product does this does this does this does this does this well what does that mean to me mm. you know that's the connectivity that comes from i guess all the things we've talked about today so far I love it. Paul, I want to ask you the last, uh, oh, sorry, the last five questions before we close it up, if you're ready for it. Yeah. Um, the first one is, if you could write a sentence on a giant billboard that the entire world can read, what would you write? A sentence. Okay, well, um, it would be a sentence and I didn't write it, but I would, I would, I yes, would write and say, that is, be merciful. Be humble and be just. I love it. I love it. That's beautiful. The second one is if you could spend five minutes with Paul yeah. at the age of 15 years old, what advice would you give him? Just rephrase that question again. I want to make sure I got the context. Sorry, say yeah. again. If you could spend five minutes with yourself, at the age of 15 years old, what advice would you give yourself? Um, get information that's valid earlier in every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. Get yeah. information that's valid. So check it out. Make sure you've got valid information before you do something. Yeah. Do it earlier than you did. <laughs> yeah, I love it. What is success to you? I think it harks back to it's a continuous thing. It's not. It's not a destination. It's not. You, I don't think success you arrive at. Success is is a culture. It's 
it's it's organic it it lives with you it's a daily place yes yes i love it i love it which so, doesn't mean it has to have money with it or position or fame it could but it doesn't have to yes yes the second last is what is the best advice that you ever received from someone Uh, I think it, I've quoted a couple of times is stop getting advice of people who are as messed up or, or more messed up than you are. Don't put mm -hmm. your stock in. Look at their fruit. See what they've got going. Why am I listening to this person? They're not delivering what they're talking about. So, All right. yeah. Before my last question, where can people find you online if they want to work with you? Um, how can they get in touch? Thank you. Yeah, well, dnacoaching.com.au has a Calendly link there. You can say, talk to Paul, and that gives you a, a, a window straight into talking with me. There's no fees involved or anything like that to start talking. So, yeah, dnacoaching.com.au, and you'll just click talk to Paul, and it gives you a, like a typical Calendly link. You can set the time and day that suits you and fits my calendar, and we can talk on the phone. Or you can write me an email on at paul at paulhannon.com awesome awesome yeah. my last question paul is what is the impact that you want to make on others uh whoa there's two parts to that I, I i do believe in a life after death so i'd say do everything you can on earth to be ready for the one that comes next mm. i love it i love it paul Thank you so much. Your story is extraordinary. I am being listening here for, you know, an hour just, you know, in wow really? mode. I'm so glad that, you know, you were able to, <clears throat> to open up and, and share all of these amazing concepts with, with myself and the audience. And I uh, really hope we can have you back in the show very soon. Thank you, Matteo. Look forward to meeting you one day uh, in live uh, meeting somewhere. And thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. All the best.